Thursday, May 29th. Welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast. My name is Hunter Hillegas from RateVegas.com. Um, we're back again this week, and uh, we've got all kinds of different potential topics. So we're going to uh, start off talking about a few things, and we'll see where this conversation takes us. I am joined by my regular lineup of uh, excellent Vegas pundits. Um, that would include Chuck from VegasTripping.com. Chuck, how are you? I am great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Uh, David McKee, how are you today? Uh, flat on my back with a migraine, but if there's one thing I can do under any circumstance, it's talk. All right. <laughs> well, good. We'll hold you to it. Uh, and we hope you feel better. Um, Jeff Simpson, how are you? Greetings. I'm doing very well, guys. Thank you. Excellent. And uh, and Dave Schwartz? I'm pretty good. Excellent. All right. Well, um, you know, <clears throat> we usually, before we do our uh, our biweekly show, um, we circulate some topics. And, you know, we did that again this week. And um, sometimes there's a, a runaway contender for sort of a primary can't-miss topic. And we had a couple that were – that are timely, but uh, we had a lot of different little sort of mini stories. So we're going to start off talking about a few things, and then we'll just see where the conversation goes. So anybody feel free to uh, interject at any time. If there's something that you think we should talk about that I'm missing, feel free to uh, to throw it in there. Um, but one story I did want to start off with is something that we have talked about in the past, which is the lawsuit from Richard Schwen, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, the Chinese gentleman that, um, I, well, I guess I don't have to say allegedly anymore, do I, um, that the, a Las Vegas jury awarded him an award in, a, in his case, lawsuit against Las Vegas Sands. Um, for those that don't remember, uh, he had said that basically, to make a long story short, helped engineer uh, the juice that Las Vegas Sands needed to get their gaming license in Macau and had wanted some uh, remuneration for that. And um, the uh, the jury in, in Clark County awarded him, what, I think, was it $43 million, $48 million, something like that, um, which I think was technically less than he originally asked for. I think his lawsuit was like $100 million, mm-hmm. but still, obviously, a significant sum of money. Um, what do you guys think about this? Was this a surprise that it ended up this way, that the jury ruled in his favor? Any thoughts? <laughs> um, I, a surprise in, I guess, to the extent that the, the the jury did not find him particularly credible, him personally, but they they found the circumstances of 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 the way in which uh, Las Vegas Sands won the the concession to be such that uh, that they found Las Vegas Sands in the final analysis to be even less credible. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I did read that in the article. There was an article um, that I linked to on my blog from the RJ that talked about some sort of the outcome. Uh, I personally, there was a lot. I thought a couple of very interesting things over the course of this case. One, one was something that I I couldn't believe that they that Adelson said as a uh, officer of a public company that uh, that Bill Widener had some. I mean, I can't remember his exact quote, but it was something along the lines of neglected his fiduciary duty, which is like a red alarm for a public company official. Uh, and you know, of course, they came back and tried to uh, and tried to squelch that one after the fact. 
But, I mean, to say something like that is just crazy. Well, I, I too, was very surprised by that. I did not cover any of the courtroom stuff. We had a few people from The Sun um, who were over there pretty regularly. Liz Benson covered uh, covered it um, somewhat. and uh, But I think that, you know, there's a couple things in general um, during my time in Las Vegas. I've noticed, you know, juries are not particularly um, – sympathetic to Las Vegas casino companies. But um, balancing that, judges are incredibly sympathetic to Las Vegas casino companies, and they regularly um, will reverse jury verdicts or, you know, like reduce the scale of damages awarded or, you know, just, you know, and and that took place in a case where Park Place, the former uh, Park Place Entertainment, um, where they they, they were charged with, um, sort of screwing up a guy's markers and trying to uh, stick him with additional marker charges. And the jury found in his favor and awarded big damages, millions in damages. And then the judge just said, you know, no, this is a jury that ran amok. Um, so I think that the upshot of this case will be, it'll be very interesting to see what the judge does, first of all. And uh, second, it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I, I would be, Totally amazed. I know the Sands lawyers said they were going to appeal, and I would be amazed if they don't. Um, and, you know, I think Richard Sun, or however you pronounce his name, I think he's going to have a pretty long time waiting for uh, any cash from them. I mean, you know, a logical solution would probably be for them to give him some single digit millions number to walk away, but. Um, you know, and, and I know this very well, it's a litigious company and they don't, they don't necessarily back away from continuing to fight in lawsuits when, uh, you know, things look like they're going against them. So, you know, but it was certainly a very interesting case. I mean, some of the, the element about whether the Chinese government sort of influenced Edmund Ho and some of these other people on the committee that made the decision about which, which, uh, applicants would get licenses, the jury seemed to believe Suen's contention that um, the Chinese um, mainland government um, influenced Ho. And, and, you know, based on what I know about the way Macau is governed, that wouldn't be surprising. Now, the people that the Venetian brought in from the committee that um, representing Macau, you know, of course, they protested that, oh, you know, this was all us and there was no mainland influence, but that's what they would say um, in in any case. Um, and so I think that's, you know, the jury sort of bought into that argument. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right, um, and, and I absolutely agree that an appeal is on the horizon. I mean, they they stated that, and you know, uh, you're right. He probably won't see any cash for quite some time, well, but. Yeah. Uh, it sort of anticipated my my one big question out of this, which is that in his closing argument, Rusty Harden said that well, you know, if you you know if you had to assign a dollar value to to Suen Services, use this four hundred thousand dollar figure that Bill Widener threw out. And the question is, if if Sand thought that that uh, you know that four hundred thousand dollars was was a fair amount, you know, did they offer that to Suen at some point? And if they didn't, why not? Because were I a shareholder, I'd be I'd be inclined to ask, why did you pursue such a 
a costly and becoming costlier course of litigation if you could have made this go away for a lot less, right. a lot sooner. I think that's always a good question to ask, but at the same time, I, you know, as Jeff had indicated, the the, the they they love litigation over there, and they, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> they see. And this is uh, definitely my own uh, opinion, but they just seem sort of vindictive. They want to punish this guy at this point. <laughs> they, want, they don't want him to get a dime, and they seem just sometimes they seem sort of mean spirited in the way that they conduct their business. Not but a week goes by where there's an announcement of a uh, lawsuit between Las Vegas Sands and somebody. Yeah. Oh, and, oh there was a new one today about a st- involving a stolen truck. Exactly. What's the story there? So some people were moving from from uh, Illinois to from Chicago to Los Angeles, and they decided to overnight at uh, sorry I shouldn't use the stay overnight at the Venetian. They alleged that they were instructed to park their their Pens their 26 foot Penske rental truck in a lot that they were told was um, allegedly told was was guarded round the clock. Come the next morning, the truck was missing. It turned up about a month later, denuded of, of valuables. Um, but anyway, they're they're suing the, uh, uh, the uh, Las Vegas Sands for you know for the for the theft of their their rental truck and their belongings. I remember this story when it happened. Actually, I think Chuck, it was one of your uh, you know what not to do kind of posts. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No I remember. Tell. Yeah, exactly. I remember when that happened. I didn't know that they were suing, so that's interesting. Yeah, they, and they had a rash of these all around the valley. I know there was a couple stolen from Sunset Station. I think uh, a couple on the Boulder Strip too. So this was really going on for a while. And I believe that they catch, they caught the people who were behind it. They ended up doing some kind of sting operation huh. and caught them. I remember the the video on TV with the they they ended up bringing everybody's stuff to a warehouse, and the police had to have people come and prove that the property was there before they could claim it. So even when they found the stuff. It was still a nightmare for the people. Wow. It, 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 it was a sad story, but you got you have to confess it's sort of amusing, the idea of somebody on a cross-country move in like a big U-Haul truck or whatever <laughs> pulling, into the, pulling into the Venetian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's just, that's just it, amusing to me. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of casinos on the outskirts of Las Vegas. Sure. Plenty of it's surface parking and very uh, lost in America. <laughs> it's well, yeah, it's just sort of crazy. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, movies, by the way. For if yet if the if the listeners haven't seen Lost Robert in America, Clark. if they like Las Vegas, they should definitely go check that movie out. When I moved across the country, I I drove through the strip, but I didn't stop because I had a you know a car packed to the rafters with guitars and all sorts of crap. So I I don't know why they would even. Not stopping. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I'm not sure that this family is going to qualify for the sharpest tool in the shadow board. <laughs> well, so they certainly don't want to get any of us to testify in their in their lawsuit because I don't think we will have much sympathy. Um, the next the next story. Well, before before we get off Las Vegas stands, I do I do want to just make a point. Um, there was just been a story in the newspaper this past Monday was uh, Memorial Day holiday, and there's been some coverage of this already. But um, Las Vegas Sands and Sheldon Adelson did bring a group of um, of U.S. Uh, military veterans into uh, Las Vegas to celebrate. And you know, 
despite all the hammering I do on Sheldon Adelson, I think that's quite a stand-up thing to do. And uh, I just wanted to get that on the record to make sure that <clears throat> that was out there. So good job, Sheldo. Keep it up. I think he said that he wanted to extend this offer to pretty much all the uh, the servicemen out there that were interested. So probably see more of this to come, but it's, uh, it's a class act maneuver. So What exactly were the details? Did they, did they sport the rooms? Did they fly them out there? They, they, they picked them up in the jet. I mean, the, the, I think the folks that were there this, this, this time were actually, you know, injured soldiers from Walter Reed in uh, Washington, D.C., that they picked up in the jet and they gave them the penthouse and, you know, they had a bunch of them there. They basically sounded like they pretty much took care of everything. Um, you know, I – they had their choice of shows, restaurants. They stayed in, you know, high roller suites, not even just, you know, the regular suites. They were um, – they flew on the fans 747. Um, you know, they did get that first-class treatment. I think – I noticed on David's blog he made a funny reference. Um, you know, and I think it was a great thing that they did this. We have other companies in Las Vegas who have been very stand-up when it comes to folks serving in our military. Sure. MGM Mirage has – Sort of famously, they're paying all their National Guard and Reserve people their full salaries during their entire call-up. Um, some companies offset their pay or don't pay them at all. They let the military pay them or offset, you know, the difference with, from what they're getting in the uh, from the military. MGM just pays them in full and holds their job. Um, but in this case, these people were coming from Walter Reed and from Bethesda Naval Hospital. And, uh, you know, Walter Reed has famously been uh, sort of, uh, you know, has been in the news for the deplorable conditions there. And Adelson is a, you know, a big supporter of George Bush, obviously a big supporter of American foreign policy in the Middle East, sort of an aggressive foreign policy. And, uh, you know, it might be, you know, I mean, as, as generous it is, as it is to offer um, wounded veterans to, uh, you know, the ability to come here, um, you know, taking care of them in the hospital themselves um, would be an even better thing. You know, Adelson doesn't necessarily have any control over that, but um, it would be uh, a good thing probably for him to speak out publicly and uh, demand that his president, uh, you know, do that. Well, we would hope that if, he, you know, with the poll that he obviously does have, that he would work behind the scenes to... Well, I give him I give him kudos for putting his you know for putting his money where his mouth is. I mean, it's sort of sure. because it's there's you know how how often do you turn on the news and there's somebody you know just regurgit you know putting an American flag pin on their lapel and uttering some platitudes about patriotism and support the troops and then they turn around and they you know vote to cut veterans benefits or something. Uh, so I'm. I thought it was a refreshing change from from what we've gotten used to in recent years. Yep, I agree. I Definitely wanted to give him uh, the recognition that he deserves for that move. So good work, Sheldo. I hope you don't mind me calling you Sheldo. Um, let's see. Oh, okay. <laughs> Keeping on the um, on. And we were talking about um, Macau a little bit. There was a story. Recently, and I, I know uh, David. I think you brought this to my uh, attention for this week, and hopefully, uh, you know, you have some insight. Maybe Chuck does as well, um, or anyone else, uh, of the limiting of the visas um, into Macau. So, I, you know, I have a pretty limited understanding of exactly how that process works. But I think, in a nutshell, 
um, the various Chinese provinces have rules that govern um, how often their citizens can get uh, visas to visit places like Macau and Hong Kong. Um, and obviously, you know, that's a uh, tight control over the uh, over the demand side of the uh, of the Macanese uh, economy. How is this going? How significant is this? A and B, um, you know, is this going? To, are we going to see a big a big impact on uh, on these casino operators because of it? Well, I'll jump in if no one else wants to right away. You know, I think this has been. A, kind of a, a back burner concern of companies for a while because a lot of the success in Macau has really been based on the liberalization of the border restrictions, and there's been no guarantee that they're going to stay liberalized. You know, I think you've got a couple of big, obviously big events recently. The earthquake, you know, killed 71,000 people or more outright. I think maybe that might have some kind of ripple effect. Um, also, the Olympics coming up, um, that might also have some kind of political you know, impact, and they might want to tighten those controls for a little while, at least while the world, you know, all around the world stage. So, you know, I think it might, on another interesting note, this global analysis report just came out and estimated that, that Macau would earn more than $13.5 billion in gaming revenue, which is more than all of Clark County, and didn't, you know, um, didn't factor this and take this into account. So it might, mm -hmm. you know, even if it is a little bit less because of this, it's still going to be a pretty big number. Well, and before we went live, you uh, you said you thought the Chinese government might have some concerns about the uh, um, that people are just burning through too much money too fast. Yeah, well, I think the concern is that, you know, hypothetically you could say people were, were stuffing money in their mattresses for, you know, something to do for a rainy day. And as soon as they got the chance to go to Macau, they would say, okay, the rainy day is here, let's go to Macau and try to double it. And, you know, the concern is what happens after you don't have any more provinces to liberalize the restrictions right. to. You know, is the visitation going to going to plummet is the revenue going to plummet you know, interesting. i don't know to what extent anybody i don't know to what extent the companies there had you know factored this in uh, but clearly that ha you know clearly the demand has not peaked yet and it's you know if this global analysis report um is you know is to be believed which i don't know i wouldn't be the demand is going to be growing even more this year and next year and now, correct me if I'm wrong. The province that this, this latest province that has sort of tightened things down back a little bit is the province that actually surrounds Hong Kong and Macau, and is arguably, you know, probably the uh, largest source of uh, most of the wealth is concentrated in that area. Is that correct? According to what I read. Yeah, well, that's sort of what it sounded like from what I'd read as well. And it's it'll be. It used to be that you could have at least two visas per month, and and now it will be, will just be one. Uh, also, the government's made it pretty clear that that it doesn't. It's concerned about the proportion of Macau's GDP that is uh, strictly derived from from gambling revenue. <laughs> They'd like to see that. They, well, yes, I agree. It's you know, it, it is is uh, ironic, but but uh, I mean, they're sort of they're they're uh, trying to do a little uh, a little market experiment, you know, uh, trying to will the market into 
diversification, as it were. So it's it's uh, um, you know as 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 though by uh, by uh, simply limiting the flow of gamblers to Macau, that will de facto somehow diversify the Macanese economy. We'll see. Well, we definitely will see, and it will be interesting to see how the impact of the Olympics in China, how how the government's obviously, you know, they they lobbied hard for it, and they see it as a great opportunity for them to, uh, you know, expose China to the world, and it's it's uh, a gold star for them, I guess. But it'll be interesting to see as as they are so concerned about managing every aspect of that public relations adventure, you know, how how do things like this continue to happen? Does are there other policy changes that are made that affect Macau in any way as we run up to that. Well, Macau is its an economic experiment from their point of view, so uh, it sounds like they're trying to, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, um, trying to, to alter some of the, the conditions under which the experiment is conducted. Right. I think, the, I think it's going to be interesting when we start getting even more high-profile Chinese um, government officials and you know titans of industry or you know accused of um, economic crimes which are punishable sometimes by death in China and it'll be interesting to see how much cooperation um, I would imagine total um, they'll get from American and other foreign operated casino companies when they're asked by you know, the Macau government influenced by the Chinese government to, you know, provide gambling information on, you know, suspected economic criminals, you know, corporate embezzlers, government Mm -hmm. officials. I think that's going to be an interesting thing. I think, you know, I mean, here in Las Vegas, we certainly have had plenty of high-profile folks, both uh, Americans and foreign, who have come here and played their ill-gotten gains, um, you know, the, those two things sort of seem to go together. And uh, I don't know how much appetite the Chinese government is going to have for, um, you know, those folks uh, playing in Macau. I think that's something that we should keep an eye on as uh, time moves forward. I agree. I agree. Well, we'll definitely uh, continue to track it and see what happens. It'll be interesting to check it out. I think uh, at this point we're going to steer back to uh, the Silver State. Um, a couple of stories in, in Las Vegas and, that I think are kind of interesting. Um, one is the rumor making the rounds today that the Cosmopolitan Project, um, next to sandwiched between City Center and Bellagio on the Strip, which um, has been in distress, um, may have been sold or taken over or somehow uh, somehow given, gotten by uh, the related companies, I believe, uh, with the potential outcome being a W Las Vegas, uh, W is a Starwood brand um, that would be on the strip. Um, there was, uh, you know, previously a potential project on Harmon that never got off the ground. Um, but you know, this, this sounds like it could actually happen. So have you guys heard this as well? I've seen it floating around the rumors, the rumors today. And do we have any more concrete information on it than what, than what I've read? Well, I think it definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, uh, Howard Stutz had a piece in the business press, I think last week talk, you know, giving 
a couple of reasons why MGM wasn't interested in Cosmopolitan. And I think they've always been a little bit more interested in Tropicana than Cosmopolitan. So, you know, I think it makes sense that they wouldn't get it. And obviously the W brand was going to be here and then, you know, disappeared. So I guess it makes sense for them to try to come back with that property. Yeah, I mean, to me it makes perfect sense. It sounds like uh, a, a very viable matchup. Um, you know, it's just a matter of time, I thought, until something like this would happen. And that, that brand seems like, obviously, they want to get into the Las Vegas market. Um, and this might be a great way for them to do it without having to, you know, start from scratch. Well, I, mean, I, would, I would think the only other real option they would have right now might be Echelon Phase 2 um, or whatever. You know, if Wynn is going to be partnering with people in that golf course development. Other than that, I think it would be pretty hard to get on the strip in the next five to ten years it's it's a great opportunistic play by related if they can pull it off i mean they get a much better location than the one they had and uh i would i would think that that deutsche bank being anxious to see this project through to completion is is not going to make the it's going to make it attractive for for related to take it off their hands mm-hmm. um, could I, be wrong and and i have i you know i have no idea um whether um that rumor is is going is going to be proven to be true or not but uh i do know i i, I talked to steve Wynn about maybe a month and a half two months ago and asked him you know who he thought would end up with the cosmopolitan this is i guess when eichner it maybe was even longer than that but um it was when eichner was having some troubles and uh, was trying to renegotiate his debt. And, you know, Wynn said he, he didn't think any established operator was going to want that project. He um, he questioned its design. Um, he says that, you know, Atlantic City um, has proven um, the reluctance of customers to move beyond the, above the first floor for uh, the pub, their public area, um, you know, spending opportunities. And that this, you know, the Cosmopolitan Project, because of its shoehorned footprint, um, you know, they, I think they have like three or four or five levels of, you know, restaurants and shops and stuff before you get up to the hotel level. And, you know, it's just a, not your typical gaming um, opportunity. I mean, you know, the, the logical buyer, of course, is MGM Mirage, but you've know, you got to wonder whether, um, you know, they already have their plates full and I think that, you know, they, they probably would buy it at an absolute distressed price. But, um, you know, if, you know, Deutsche Bank is probably trying to, you know, extricate itself as much as it can from whatever um, risk, whatever, you know, um, liability they have or whatever exposure they have. So they're, they're looking to maximize what they're going to get. And, you know, related companies has moved in and out of several projects in Las Vegas. They're most famous for doing the World Market Center, our furniture mart, but they've also pulled out of several condo projects. So, you know, any any rumors about their interest in something or their, you know, I don't know if it's a, if it's a fully fleshed out offer, but I would be skeptical of, you know, whatever they plan to do until, you know, the thing's open. Yeah, well, months, well, actually more than months, maybe a year and a half ago now, someone working on the Cosmopolitan Project sent me a detailed 
floor plans and specs for all of the first five or six levels, which are the public area levels. And, you know, I looked, I checked them out, and you would, I would, I remember telling people about the Cosmopolitan Project, and there were quite a few readers on my on my blog that were that sounded excited about it, that, that thought it was uh, an interesting project. But for me, it always struck me, and this this goes back at least in part to what what you were saying about what Steve Wynn said. Really, it always struck me as one of those projects that sort of sounded good in theory, but once you get it once you get it open, it doesn't quite perform the level that you expected. Uh, and you and you realize it's because a lot of little things just weren't quite right. Um, you know, <laughs> things that sounded okay in the planning stages were sort of taken for granted. Um, so again, sort of maybe like the Aladdin experience. You know, mistakes like um, forcing people to walk upstairs and around things, and just stuff that you don't really realize unless you've either done it before and you have the experience, or you have the misfortune of making the mistake and having to fix it. Um, so you know, I, I'm not surprised to see that uh, that uh, that no one's really jumping at this. But I mean, obviously, it's not going to be well. I shouldn't say obviously because although I'll be proven wrong, but hopefully, it's not going to be a uh, you know a, a a steel shell sitting there unfinished for years and years. I think we'll see someone step in and finish the project um, and and open it. But uh, I'm not surprised that the established folks aren't aren't trumping at the bit to get it. We will have to see, I guess. Um, so another story in Las Vegas that I thought was interesting, and maybe you guys can give me a little bit of historical perspective. We had two high-profile uh, check fraud uh, issues. Um, basically, in, in Nevada, when you take out a marker, if you fail to pay, um, basically a marker is just like a check. It's enforced in the same way. So it's basically like writing a bad check. Um, both both uh, former NFL player Pac-Man Jones and uh, Charles Barkley, former basketball player, uh, were involved in these situations. Now, what I thought was interesting is I assume this stuff happens all the time, but obviously these were high-profile individuals, but they, these were very public. Um, I thought that was kind of strange, actually, especially with the Charles Barkley thing. It seemed to me like the kind of publicity that Win Las Vegas would not want, Um but, uh, you know, I'm, I was hoping to get some historical perspective from you guys that have been watching this for a long time. Is this common for them to call people out like this? It is. And, you know, the thing is that all of these, all of these court filings are public knowledge. Um, when this story broke, I was interviewed by a local TV station here, and they showed me their printout of the court records and just said, okay, well, these, you know, these cases are stuff that has nothing to do with the markers, and these are ones that do have something to do with the markers. It was just amazing at the total amount of litigation that casinos were involved in. So, you know, I think if somebody does a little bit of investigative footwork there, they can dig this stuff up. And I think this probably is a case where somebody just started doing some investigative journalism, dug this stuff up, and, you know, went public with it, and then the casinos had to respond. I don't think it's a case of the casinos stepping forward and saying, okay, Charles Barkley owes us nearly half a million dollars. Yeah, I can clearly say that isn't what happened. It was uh, the Las Vegas Sun that broke those. And not only that, but there was a story today about one of the that uh, sort of famous Barack Obama uh, financier who's on trial, uh, um, the guy who helped him to Chicago. Exactly. That case, uh, that story broke in the Las Vegas Sun today that he also is the subject of a uh, – of a uh, marker collection um, effort by our district attorney's office. And, you know, um, typically 
those cases uh, or you know those stories come out because uh, you know of a, of a reporter uh, you know digging around and looking at um, you know documents, maybe knowing somebody over in the you know the bad <laughs> the bad check unit or you know getting you know getting a tip or a heads up when something's about to be filed. Um, and those, you know, they're they're great stories. I mean, they're you know from a from a journalist's point of view, um, and from the you know the the the, the resorts make their decision um, when they actually go to the district attorney. And that's you know once that happens, you know it's out of their hands. Um, the district attorney does what they do, which um, and you know they, there's all kinds of additional charges that get tacked on. Um, that the person has to pay, they have to take like some financial management courses, which is amusing. <laughs> I thought that was funny. People making millions of dollars a year, um, and uh, but you know the casinos, you know they have this ultimate leverage, you know, which is that you know if you write, if you sign a marker, it's treated like a check in Nevada, um, and but it's a you know it's it's a pretty draconian step to take. So casinos do as much as they can um, to try and get the person you know, to pay or start paying or make promises of payment. What frustrates casinos typically is when the person turns off communication, doesn't return the phone calls, doesn't return the emails, you know, and, and when that happens, the casino figures, well, you know, this guy's a deadbeat and he's going to stiff us. And, uh, you know, I, you know, to me, I, I've just as a, I, I tend to be more of a pro consumer person um, the reason Nevada has that law is because under common law, gambling debts are not enforceable. So if gambling markers weren't treated as checks, there would be no recourse for casinos other than to deny people future credit. And, you know, this state, you know, that means that tax revenues are going to be lost as well. And so it was probably a pretty easy sell to get our legislators to um, make, to write the law that treats uh, mark, markers as checks, but I, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think other states have that rule, and so casinos probably have to be a little more careful about about uh, you know um, issuing credit, and you know, I don't know what recourse they have other than denying people future credit in other jurisdictions, and I think that's you know uh, maybe Dave knows. Or more about how Atlantic City does that, yeah, but that's that's my understanding is that they don't have that same rule there. Uh, actually, they when they legalized casinos there in '76, and when they formulated the rules in '77, they specifically put into the law that the, the markers could be collected and gambling debts were collectible. What had started happening is that players would be, would, be, would started paying their markers for the Atlantic City casinos and not the Nevada ones. So in '83, Nevada changed the law to and said. You know, we'll treat it as a check and make it collectible. So I know at least in New Jersey they are collectible, and that's what changed the, the policy here. But they're collectible, but are they collectible as – and so the debts are collectible, but if someone signs a marker and doesn't pay, are they not just on the hook for the money in a legal judgment, but are they on the hook for a crime for having signed the check? And that's, that's I think, the difference yeah. uh, is that here – it's a crime to sign a marker and not pay it. I mean, you know, whether you owe the money or not, that's, you know, that's, and, and I think there are other states that have that, but I, I'm not aware, and maybe there are other states that treat it as a crime. But, uh, you know, like in most, you know, I mean, most states treat bad checks as a crime, 
but whether you know the issuance of casino credit, if you use it and don't pay it back, whether that should be a crime, I think that's I think it's different and should probably be treated differently. Is there any indication that the, that this cluster of prosecutions is is intended to you know to send a a high profile message or is it just a coincidence? I think it's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also, in a lot of ways it's sort of you know a lose 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 situation as they might say in the <laughs> office for um, for the casinos because you know they're not getting their money back. They have, you know, they have these losses publicized, which is never good for business to hear that somebody lost a lot of money. You know, there's a reason why there's a lot of billboards with smiling people saying how much they won in the jackpots and not people saying how much they lost. So, you know, I think I, I think it's it's never something they want to do. I think it's something that they have to do in the end, because while they're always going to write off some, you know, they're going to write off something for bad markers. You know, enough's enough, and they've got to be responsible to the shareholders. Do we know if if uh if Harris knew about Resco's $330,000 in dishonored MGM Mirage markers when they were issuing him credit at Caesars and Bally's? I mean, they should, because the credit system that they have should make make them aware of that. Yeah, it was my understanding is that, that the credit checking for that stuff was fairly centralized. Isn't that correct? But that's my understanding too. That's what I thought. Anyway, um, I just thought it was interesting, and I, I'm glad that you guys uh, had some background on on that stuff because you know it's, it's at least been a while since I had seen a cluster of those kinds of stories in the news. Um, now I want to talk about. I'm going to put Chuck on the spot. Um, Chuck posted a, a a story to his website VegasChipping.com that I thought was pretty interesting. I know uh, Dave Schwartz, uh, you linked to it also, I think, which was an int- a cool story about Las Vegas casino logos uh, and sort of imparting a vibe based on your uh, based on your messaging stuff. Chuck, do you want to talk about your article at all? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I uh, have some training in uh, graphic design and whatnot, and uh, you know, I love the I love the casinos and the logos and. You know, the way people set out type and logos, you know, they, it means something. Uh, this is all kind of – I've been working on this story for a while, and I sort of put it in the can and forgot about it. Uh, but Luxor changed their logo in the last few weeks uh, to a new, uh, different thing. They brought back the pyramid, but now it's part of the X as opposed to being below the X and above the X and that kind of thing. So – uh, inspired by that, you know, I just kind of took a look at all of the NGM Mirage logos, uh, either companies that they have now or have acquired, whatnot, their entire stable, and uh, looked at, you know, compared some of the older ones with the newer ones and, you know, what they mean and how they've kind of evolved. Uh, and what, what, what really got me thinking while I was doing it was uh, when, when a company changes a logo, it's a pretty drastic uh, branding message. You know, they, they've almost kind of given up on what they have. They're going to uh, either either there's they, they find that there's something wrong with the product that they have and they need to reintroduce it, or uh, you know they've improved the product or distilled the product. Uh, like with uh, with AT&T, their recent shift 
to the uh, to the Globe logo, uh, you know, they finally got back to uh, reunifying all of their disparate companies. You know, they had the Singular Wireless and this, that, and the other thing. And, and they finally decided to roll the whole thing back together and launch the whole thing as AT&T again. Uh, Apple, similarly, uh, you know, they, they started out as a garage kind of hippies making computers and have slowly evolved their logo from a very bizarre uh, hand drawing to just the simple Apple. No longer it says Apple computer, what have you. Uh, just a simple logo, you know, mark that, that, that could mean anything. You see that Apple, you know it's an Apple product and all the other stuff that goes along with it, including black turtlenecks. Uh, you know, and, and, and the company seem to be doing that the same. You know, MGM Mirage has been uh, upgrading a lot of their properties lately. They, uh, and with that, you know, starting probably with Treasure Island about two or three years ago, you know, they dropped the, uh, the uh, fancy Treasure Island logo, which is still on the top of the building, mind you, to that uh, nondescript uh, TI, whatever that means, uh, while they were dumping the whole uh, family children thing for a more sexy kind of vibe. And they've done this with Excalibur. They've done this with uh, uh, New York, New York. They they dumped the uh, the uh, Statue of Liberty, got the boot, and now it's just pretty much straight up text. Uh, the Monte Carlo used to have the I don't <laughs> the even know what hat. the hell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it looks like a like a boot standing on a violin bow, or you know, or, or a rabbit with a skewer through it. I'm not sure. You know, it's, I guess it's a hat with a whatever. Uh, you know, and, and anyway, these, you know, the logos have evolved and they've changed and different ways of doing different types of typefaces, you know, denote different types of styles. Uh, I think I think the most famous would be the Mirage dropping their palm trees, their colored palm trees. Yeah. From the logo. I mean, that's, that was probably, you know, for that property spent a decade as the premier property in Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, they they pretty quickly stomped out those palm trees when they you know when they introduced love and um, yeah. you know, changed a bunch of the restaurants and that was you know that was always one of my favorite logos among the uh, among the casinos and um, I was sort of disappointed when they did that. I also didn't like the the Treasure Island change either. I, I understand why they did it, but um, I thought they were pretty cool logos, but. Um, the Mirage, the Mirage is even continuing to rip that stuff out because that you used to even see that on the glass doors and in the south, the south entrance from the strip next to uh, the the uh, the mall there is now being completely redone and ripped out and there will be no no sign left of those of the 80s uh, pastel trees ever. <laughs> but you know, Chuck, one of the things that I, that stood out for me in your in your article. Um, was what I thought was interesting was the circus circus was circus circus and how it has not changed at all pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the circus circus logo from the time that uh, that joint was open. What, what year was that? Sixty-eight. Uh, it has remained the same. It has not changed whatsoever. It's been the same fancy, uh, you know, uh, serif. Uh, whatever carnival kind of font, you know, they've given it a bunch of different types of treatments, you know, uh, beveling it up and making it look glassy and metallic before glassy metallic was cool, uh, you know, but in those times, you know, just like the focus of the property, the logo and the branding itself has not ever changed, uh, you know, and it, it makes me wonder, you know, it was like, uh, people are saying, oh, things were always better back in the old days. Well, I don't, I don't really, can't really speak to that, but, uh, 
you know, why do the logos change? Can they not come up with a Coca-Cola or a Flamingo or a what have you right from the beginning that will identify the property forever? Right. Well, I mean, you look at what they did at Bellagio, and you mentioned this as well, is it hasn't changed. And, part, you know, and, and I guess in a way, part of that is it's very simple, and you could probably argue somewhat classical in that it's there's not a lot in there to date it. It won't, you know, it's like, you know, it's like why would no one ever want to do a space-themed casino? Well, in 10 years, it's not going to look very futuristic, is it? Um, it's that, that sort of thing. So by staying away from those immediately dating concepts, uh, you know, maybe they have a better chance. And even Mandalay Bay, who, who I'm looking at your thing right now, who have at least slightly changed and updated their logo, the, the base theme, the swooping M wave kind of vibe is, is still prevalent. So, um, I, think you can, I think that you can say that from MGM Mirage's perspective, as a company that acquired um, all of the Steve Wynn and Mandalay portfolios and their properties, I mean, you know, they've gotten changed um, a number of them, and I think that, you know, the ones that they're not changing, Circus Circus, you know, they they maintain that that's a property that they're going to keep. You know, it's their low, you know, it's their is their lowest tiered property in town. But I, you know, I think that it's just a property that they have decided that doesn't merit, you know, big amounts of reinvestment. I mean, they're you know, they, if you look at what they've done with all their other properties, um, they have you know invested hundreds of millions of dollars in each of them. Um, you know, refreshing Mirage, refreshing Treasure Island, New York, New York, um, MGM Grand, Mandalay, Luxor. Um, and I think that when they look at Circus Circus, you know, the only, you know, the, the, the best, and they, they will say that they don't plan to do this, but the best refreshment for Circus Circus is going to be an implosion. Um, <laughs> and, 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 uh, you know, so, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you that it is interesting when they change. They obviously want to keep it fresh, and they think that that's one way that they can accomplish it. Obviously, the other is changing its features, um, you know, changing signage, you know, change the vibe of the place. And, and I think a logo is just a part of the, a logical extension of all those things. I agree. And I think the, the other thing that's interesting to tie into it is is also the sort of naming and from project name to you know to uh to name on the side of the building and I can think of at least two instances recently where we had project names that ended up that end up sounding like they were, are at least going to be part of the of the final the final name and I'm thinking of Encore which many people thought was not going to be the final name of the building um but it clearly is um, and City Center, which, you know, Project City Center was their original concept name. And, and City Center now, minus the project, and while, while the hotel properties have – or the, while the properties have their own name, City Center is obviously a unifying concept that they're going to build on and promote to some degree. That, that, has, a benefit, that has a big benefit. I mean, they say City Center just by calling it City Center – I mean, you can bet that a lot of the international and national media that comes to Las Vegas and writes about it is going to write the new center of Las Vegas, the new center of the Las Vegas Strip. And maybe that's true. I mean, you know, I think you could look northward and say uh, Venetian Palazzo when Encore Fontainebleau um, is maybe 
um, the, and, and Echelon, you know, the new center of Las Vegas, but by calling it city center, by building with that city city type scale and density, um, you know, they're going to accomplish, you know, give people a suggestion that they have created the the new heart of Las Vegas. I think that, you know, I mean, you know, I think you can, you can certainly make an argument that it won't be, but I have a feeling that just knowing the way the national and international media treats Las Vegas, they're going to come here and discover that um, city center is the new center of our city. Um, it's, you know, and, and, and just by naming it that, they've accomplished it. Yeah, it's like if I, if I ever start a casino, it's going to be called Successful Hotel or something like that. You know? <laughs> well, and it set off a, a rash of, of centers because there was the, the, the Harrah's Project that is or was going to be Epicenter and then, of course, Megacenter, all caps. <laughs> and, you know, it just sort of uh, – I think pretty soon there might have to be a moratorium on anything using the word center. Um, the – the the mention of the Coca Cola logo it made me think of the when you contrast MGM the film studio with MGM the casino company the former despite having been through myriad changes of ownership has they have always had that same you know the lion in the the within the scroll you know that classic logo I mean they dispensed with it briefly in the late sixties early seventies but you know that uh, uh, but with that one one exception, that is that 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 logo has has uh, signified an MGM product for years. Whereas, the, you know, MGM uh, the casino company, they've got this kind of ambivalent relationship. They sometimes they try to trade on the you know, on that evocation of Leo the Lion and you know on Hollywood and so on. I mean, they admit they tried to. Trade in on it in Macau, and it didn't. It didn't translate. But at the same time, sometimes they seem to be trying to put some distance between the, the two, and they the, the the you know, and constantly kind of tinkering with the logos and so on. And and um, and it uh, reminds. It made me think of what. I mean, Dave had some interesting uh, additional reflections in Dye's cast about how some of these the properties themselves tend to send these ambivalent messages about what they are, you know, the, 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 I think the example I remember is you said, you know, the Tropicana, the name invokes something tropical, but then you get the chalets and the, the Tiffany glass and uh, just a raft of, of different visual messages coming at you. Yeah. Um, another, another point I kind of want to make with this is I think a lot of it, a lot of the reason why the logos are changing so much more frequently is the nature of the of the business now, and I think it's because so many of these decisions are made by committee and changed by committee. You know, you can look at the two Jay Sarno properties, Circus and Caesars, and you can see how, yeah, this is this one kind of nutty guy had this idea and said this is the idea and that's what it's going to be. If you look at the Wynn properties, you can see how, you know, how Steve Wynn had a single vision for what he wanted and said this is what it's going to be. Um, and obviously MGM has changed the Mirage and Treasure Island, but they haven't changed Bellagio. You know, and I think a lot that's a lot of what is what's lacking today in in the casino design process. Even though they're you know they're building some phenomenal buildings and some great projects, I think you really lack that that unifying vision that carries down to every detail. 
Mm. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, I remember one of some of the first things that they jettisoned at Bellagio when 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 exited was, you know, anyone that had stayed at Bellagio or Mirage or Treasure Island or Golden Nugget would would could could not forget the uh, you know little hotel tour video with Steve Wynn narrating, and you know he was immediately jettisoned um, once once he left the building. But it, it did give. Some, somewhat of an interesting personal, human scale personal touch that is now, you know, sort of genericized. You knew that the guy doing it was the guy that was involved in, in putting the thing together. It was kind of fun. I, I kind of want to rewind to something that, that Jeff had said about uh, the strength of the city center name and brand and logo. And and I'm curious if, if possibly because that is kind of a big marketing strength, that that's why they chose Aria, which is a pretty kind of weak, sort of floaty, nondescript name. Is it purposefully supposed to be subservient to the city center concept? Therefore, it's not as an iconic kind of hmm. name for the casino. That's an interesting point. And actually, I would that actually sort of makes sense to me in that context. If they're trying to defer to the greater brand, uh, then you know, have something that is a little bit more—I don't want to say forgettable, but um, you know, a little bit not not as powerful. I could I could buy that. Yeah, I don't I I don't really have um, a guess there. I do know that I've read the comments of the MGM folks about how they came up with the name, and Dave really hit the nail on the head. You can tell that that was like a committee decision because. They were floating names, and you know there were a whole bunch of people involved in that process. Very different than the way Steve Wynn would do it, where I imagine you might have some people making suggestions, but I but it's probably more like a bunch of people sitting around, and as soon as he came up with an idea, they'd be like, "Ah, great idea!" <laughs> um, and uh, but I think that you know with City Center, I, I you know. I, I'm not sure if I'd say, oh, let's come up with a weak name that is subservient to City Center. I think that, you know, with a, uh, it's a name that sort of suggests elegance. It suggests, um, high, you know, sort of, it suggests culture. It's not too in your face. It's not too foreign for somebody from Texas to pronounce. Um, and, you know, that's one problem with a lot of the culture words. Um, like with Larev, quite frankly, um, when Wynn talked about that, it was a it was a phrase, it was a word. It was going to be tough to say. It was going to be tough to write. Um, it used one of those crazy, crazy uh, French little carrot symbols. Um, and uh, and I think that um, Aria, it's not too difficult to pronounce. And I think that you know one of the one of the keys with these kind of resorts that aim for the very top of the market, which is what they are trying to do, is that, you know, um, and I, I think they aim, they're they aiming to have it share that spot with Bellagio, um, you know, and compete with with Wynn and Encore for that market. Um, they want, you know, they want to, you know, they want to say to their customers, this is the best, this is, you know, an, an, an elite place. And so I think they were looking for a word that would connote that. Um, whether they whether they'll succeed or not, you know, I, I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to see. And I, I know uh, a lot of the reaction to the Aria name was sort of bleh. I know a lot of people aren't weren't all that excited about it or didn't think it was, um, you know, all that innovative or interesting. But uh, hopefully, the product will outshine its name. That's all I can say about that. Um, <laughs> 
There is one more thing I wanted to talk about. We're closing in on an hour, but hopefully we can squeeze one more thing in. And this is sort of open-ended. Um, this uh, Coming up soon, or I, I'm, this is going to show how, how uh, unplugged in I am to poker, but the World Series of Poker has either started or is starting. Start um, <clears throat> tomorrow. Okay, so as we as we are heading into that, um, this is maybe a good opportunity to quickly touch on Caesars Entertainment and uh, you know where where they are at. Uh, they recently um, took the company private. Do we have any indication how things are going over there? Um, any news on the any redevelopment projects um, or anything else? I mean, there's persistent rumors about the Rio being sold off and maybe other assets. Um, just wanted to touch base quickly on on Caesars and see uh, what what people are thinking, what they're hearing. Well, they put up a lot of cyclone fencing around the uh, uh, the land they bought back along Koval, cutting off Oscar Nunez's sad little uh, apartment buildings there. And they took down the fencing around the Bourbon Street site, so it it uh, looks like some kind of a clearing of the land is in the offing. I think that um, one interesting thing that took place at the Gaming Control Board is that um, they said it was for um, debt refinancing reasons, but they split the license of Bally's in Paris. Hmm. Um, when, you know, um, that that was, a, and I'm not sure if it's the first, but it's certainly one of the first companies that realized, hey, if we just call Paris an expansion of right. Bally's, um, we don't have to go through a licensing process for a new property. Right. Uh, Airball LLC entity. Exactly. And so and so they they did that, and then they came back to the board and commission later and said, you know, we'd like to split. And so then they, you know, the officers do have to go, although they they didn't make them do the whole dog and pony show like they would with a new license, and they they allowed them. To Split the license that would make that would make it a little easier um, procedurally if they wanted to separate the properties and and sell one. I find it hard to believe that they would sell Paris um, or or Bally's, but you never know. Um, the thing with Bally's, I know that I and I think it's the front tower is the older of the two. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong there, but the older of the two towers is the one that Loveman has uh, long um, wanted to um, implode um, and, you know, along with Imperial Palace are the two that, you know, seem to be um, in greatest danger of going under the, uh, you know, going of being imploded. Um, I don't know that, you know, I have heard nothing about them announcing any plans for their properties. I do know that the cost of their debt has gone has gone way up, and I think it's a company that, you know, this is just not a great time for them to be doing, you know, you know, trying to, uh, you know, float debt to do, you know, to do some big projects. And and the problem for that company is that all of their casinos make a pretty good amount of money. All the all their casinos in that zone where they would redevelop make a lot of money, and so it's they get sort of you know, killed in both directions. They have to borrow at a time when it's very costly to borrow, and they have to throw away pretty significant cash flow to do it. And uh, this is, you know, I don't think either, you know, the the new owners of Harris, you know, quite frankly, are, you know, or at least based on what I what I know, are immediately ready to do that. 
Um, I do think that Gary Loveman expects to redevelop that, um, redevelop it. But, you know, no one's really been hurt in the long run by sitting on strip real estate. Um, they make a pretty good amount of money. They can afford to pay their debt. Um, so, you know, I, will it be redeveloped? Yes, but I think it's probably wrong to think that they're going to announce something in the next, you know, three or four months. Well, and uh, Paris and Bally's it, uh, share uh, the share a physical plant, or at least that's um, that's how it was presented back when when Paris was built. That that was how they were able to build it for seven hundred and seventy-five million when the when the going price for a strip mega resort was a billion plus was that they were able to piggyback onto a lot of the the uh, Bally's physical plants. So I'm not sure how one could could split that baby, or at least not without great difficulty. Also, Loveman having gone to such great lengths to secure the Barbary Coast and thus unify those properties on the east side of the Strip. I mean, it it, would, it wouldn't make sense to me why he would would sell off a big chunk in the middle of that. But then I gave up trying to make sense of mm-hmm. of Loveman's. Uh, strategic thinking a long time ago. I think you're right. I think I don't think that they would do it. I just found it interesting that that would probably that that license split would probably yeah. make it easier were they to do it. That reminds me, and maybe someone can fill in the blanks. I seem to remember when Aladdin was built that part of the interesting story in the initial phases was that. They actually had another company that was going to own and operate the physical plant, and they were going to pay them um, to provide that. Is that correct? Is my memory failing me? Aladdin had a company that was going to that was going to run a, the power plant. Ah, okay. And, they had, and then they had the uh, London Clubs, which was going to run the high limit area. Um, and, and London Clubs ended up getting sucked in for additional. You know, right. millions and millions, and eventually was driven out, driven into bankruptcy, and then that enabled Harris, and you know, eventually to to buy it for a pretty good price. And that now they're trying to trying to get rid of it again. The uh, Harris also appears to be dangling or getting ready to dangle a few of its outlying properties to uh, to potential buyers. The uh, the they've. With this rearrangement between the entertainment company and the operating company, uh, the three Lake Tahoe properties and Showboat Atlantic City have been herded into the operating company. And the prevalent thinking seems to be is that this is this is preliminary to a sell-off. So I'm I'm not sure who the who the likely buyer. It seems like a Heck of a time to be to be trying to uh, to be shopping around for buyers, and that and that just I mean, and and I think I saw the post where you wrote about that. If, if that's why they're doing it, it maybe it's a longer term strategy because they, they couldn't pick a worse time, you know, to try and to try and sell the sell those properties. There's there's other properties on the market, um, you know, Tropicana, Atlantic City, and. Uh, you know, it's just not a it's just not a very good time. But you know, by doing that, then they can be ready when the market reheats, as it does. So Loveman did seem to be positioning themselves, positioning the company for some kind of a 
reduction of their their presence in Atlantic City when he was saying that, well, we opened Harris Chester and surprise, surprise, it cut into our Atlantic City business, and it's not as profitable because the tax rate is lower, is higher in Pennsylvania by a considerable order of magnitude, which, I mean, I would have thought they, you know, I, maybe he's being disingenuous because, you know, they had to have figured that all out going into it, right? Yeah, you know, I think they, the they, they were going to lose either way. Somebody was going to open up in, in Philadelphia, and so, you know, they figured it may as well be them. Yeah, and I think that the Pennsylvania Gaming Commission was pretty, really stressed the fact that they didn't want people with Atlantic City licenses to come in there and just kind of use those Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania licenses as a placeholder to keep other people out. So they may have had to have made some kind of commitment about what they would do there. But, yeah, that, that just struck me as pretty, you know, not very savvy. And knowing that Loveman's a pretty smart guy, I was a little bit surprised by that. Um, also, for, for selling the showboat, I think this would probably be the worst time to sell it because the Revel Atlantic City project is going to open probably around 2010 or 2012. Maybe Chuck knows the exact date. And that's really going to energize that whole area. And that is right next to the showboat. So, you know, I they'd be better probably waiting five years to sell it and they'd get more for it. Well, as Jeff said, this may be this may be a long term play and we're just seeing the, the early innings. Very true. Well I think no matter what, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Hunter. I a couple go, go things ahead. about Harris before we uh, wrap it up. Uh, yeah. when exactly is the uh uh the name change gonna be official so we can stop calling him Harris? And uh, I hope it happens before they sell off Bill's, uh, you know, flagship property in Lake Tahoe, because I'm sure he'd be pretty upset by that if uh, they did that. Uh, another thing is Harris is doing some research about Kotai. This is the rumblings that I'm, I'm hearing, particularly related to retail. They're, they're looking at uh, possibly putting a retail component on their golf course, maybe as a prerequisite to building a larger hotel and eventually – uh, moving into the gaming if, when, they either acquire someone or uh, another uh, license opens up. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. As a, given the, the, the fact that their uh, debt servicing has tripled in the last year, I can't – I just – the mind boggles at, at what would happen if they took on another major acquisition, but I sure don't put it past them. Yeah. Well, you know, with, with Galaxy being, uh, you know, they're kind of in trouble with their, uh, you know, their numbers aren't so good. So uh, they're a possibility. Although, I mean, with since there aren't going to be any more concessions for the foreseeable future, it, no matter how badly Galaxy is being run, and from what you posted, it sounds like they're being run rather badly indeed, they, they can command a king's ransom, couldn't they? Yeah, probably. You know, one thing that people probably shouldn't think, I mean, Harris has made its bones just like a gym and through incredible acquisitions. Um, you know, they were a very small player in Las Vegas up until they bought the biggest gaming company by revenue in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, so now they're number two in the city. Um, I don't think it should surprise folks if Harris were to consider um, a big acquisition. And I think there's two 
logical companies um, for them to think about, um, but only one of them I, do I think is a, would be a possibility, and that would be Win. Um, I think that fans um, and Win both have the benefit of that Macau um, exposure. Obviously, Venetian maybe overexposure or Sands overexposure, but they, you know, they, those companies have the benefit of already being there and the ability to, you know, um, tap into that market. I think that you know one problem for Harris is they, you know, everybody seems to think and the investors that put their money where their mouths is on the subject that the top end, the high end, the luxury end of the casino market is the place to be. Um, And you're seeing that with all the investment in Las Vegas right now. It's all at the high end. And Harris, you know, they've put as much, you know, they're putting another billion into Caesars, which is really a cobbled together, um, you know, succession of, you know, of, of newer and newer towers, but there's no unifying, element there, um, and it's probably going to have a tough time continuing to compete at the top end of the Las Vegas market. Um, and that's why, I, you know, they, they certainly have talked with Steve Wynn for a long time and uh, partnered with him on boxing stuff. Um, and I think, I think you know, Loveman recognizes that Wynn has some design expertise that his company probably lacks. Um, you, know, you know, Loveman's strength is in marketing. Um, and so I think that that is a, that's a possibility. When um, you know, if he were, if when and his partner Okada have the ability and the shares to deny any kind of a takeover, but if Harris could come up with a deal that would allow Win to be, you know, the design officer of that company, you know, give him the title chairman or something, and let Loveman stay CEO, but. To allow Wynn to continue designing, um, you know, obviously that would put Harris, you know, right at the top of the top of the market with Wynn and Encore, plus an incredible huge array of land for future development, um, and and you know, um, an incredible portfolio of properties around the country to feed into Harris, you know, marketing system. So, you know, I I, I don't think that it's necessarily likely. But I think that people shouldn't shouldn't you know cast aside the prospect of Harris continuing to be in the market for uh, other other uh, gaming operators. And when I look at the Las Vegas market, I think that's the one that makes the most sense to me. Hmm. Wow, that's pretty compelling. interesting. I, I I can imagine how well the 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 Win customer base would react to the idea of of Gary Loveman taking over there it wouldn't be too there wouldn't be dancing in the aisles well i think that you know i think that that's one of the kind of things that you know that harris needs the most help with um you know how do you keep customers happy and that's something that the win regime in both you know it's mirage and its current form has proven able to do um and you know, I mean, Harris is not. They have at Caesars and elsewhere. You know, they they really have sort of their formula, and they just, you know, everything gets the Harris formula. But that's not the way um, to keep your best and most profitable customers happy. And you know, they, I, I think that if they were to use, you know, if they could entice Win into a deal, um, something that would enable him to 
you know, spend all his time designing and, you know, re, you know, obviously making a lot of money from, uh, you know, his creating a very successful company and getting that Macau license, um, you know, presumably he would, he would insist on them um, adjusting their, you know, their, their formula to allow for the kind of treatment players and customers at, at better properties deserve. And, uh, you know, so, you know, that, that can end up being good for the rest of Harris customers. Although Dave, I'm sure you're right. People would be very nervous if Harris did do that. Oh, because the, as far as when I talk to players, I mean, and I get, and this is completely unsolicited, the, the company that they are, you know, 95% of the time likely to start venting about is Harris. There is, there is an antipathy towards Harris among players that I don't really understand, and which I've encountered towards no other company. Well, I think they feel nickel and dimed. I mean, you know, especially uh, people that have been part of the loyalty program for a long time have seen a lot of the perks taken away. I know people that are, you know, platinum uh, Harris Total Rewards members that have complained about a lot of the perks that they were previously offered that recently have been, you know, they'll, one day they'll they'll switch from premium liquor to uh to non premium and then, you know, the next day it's something else. And that seems to be a continuing trend. I think they sort of feel like the company's willing to do anything to uh to increase their profit margin. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of that lately, although it, in this in the their current circumstances I think it's not so much to, to increase their profit margin because there isn't one. It's to you know, to try and save a few pennies to to pay their, you know, pay down some of the, retire some of that debt early because it's just, it's suffocating their balance sheet. I think I'm going to let that be the last word. Guys, thanks very much. We went a little bit long, but I think it was worth it. There was some interesting stuff in there. Um, I'm going to go around and uh, let you guys uh, tell folks where they can track you down. So, uh, Dave Schwartz, where can people find you? People can find me at UNLV Center for Gaming Research and at dieiscast.com. I'm assuming you want to be found, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, where can people find you? You can find me on vegastripping.com and most recently on CNBC. That's right. Congratulations, by the way. For for those that aren't aware, CNBC did a quick little uh, story on uh, deals around around the world and uh in specifically Las Vegas and they had Vegas tripping up on their uh, on their thing. So that was pretty cool. Um Jeff Simpson, where can people find you? LasVegasSun.com. And David McKee. LasVegasAdvisor.com. Excellent. Uh thanks again guys. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and uh we'll talk to you soon. Thank Take you. Care. Okay. Take care. Bye.